Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Happy New Year. Uh, We are going to be back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. If you were with us during Advent, you know we spent time in Matthew. But we've been walking through slowly all of 2022, and we'll continue in 2023 through the Gospel of Luke. Um, Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, we spent all of 2022 there, and we're only in Luke chapter 7. How long then will we be in the Gospel of Luke? The answer is a long time. Some also ask, why are you going through a book? Like, why don't we just do a series, you know, like on forgiveness or on money? Actually, no one ever asked to do a series on money. Uh, and here's the reason why. Uh, my mentor taught me, hey, just pick a passage of scripture or a book of scripture and preach through it uh, because you're going to end up coming upon texts that you may otherwise not preach from and have to talk about things you otherwise might not want to talk about or may not even think about talking about. And so we believe that when we go through large portions together, we can learn more deeply together what's there. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles or your device and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you, and you can follow along with me. This is a story about Jesus at a party, of all things. Verse 36, it says this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. Now, there's really three main characters in this story, and I want to try to kind of give us a visual of what was happening in the minds of those who would have read this story when Luke wrote it. The first character we know is a Pharisee. It's a man named Simon. Now, Josephus, who's an ancient historian, tells us that the Pharisees were one sect within first century Judaism. It's often easy for us to talk about Judaism in the first century and imagine it's kind of this monolithic thing, but it wasn't. It's just like Christianity today. There, there's a lot of different denominations, we might say, within. And the Pharisees, in particular, were a sect that believed that the problems of their country, which in this context was Roman oppression, was God's punishment for their collective sin. And so they had this belief, and N.T. Wright, another scholar, talks about this as well, that sin was connected to exile, or sin was connected to the punishment of the whole. And if that's the case, then the best thing they could do is to learn to obey God's commands, and if they could learn to obey God's commands in the way that God wanted them to, well, then their problems would go away, and the long-awaited king would come, and they would be liberated and live, in a sense, happily ever after. Now, I want you to try to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where some religious elites blame the problems of a country on a group of sinners. And just try to imagine. I know it's really difficult because we wouldn't know anything about that. The other character in the story is Jesus. Now, Jesus goes to a dinner party, and we know it's a dinner party because there's other guests there. And it's probably somewhat, I would say, official, or maybe we could use the word formal, because it says Jesus is reclining. Now, I know a lot of us have a picture of how the first century Jewish people ate meals because Jesus and all of his disciples posed on one side of the table so Leonardo could paint them at the Last Supper, but that's actually not the way that they often would have eaten. They would have eaten laying on couches. And they would have laid on their left elbow, and they would have eaten with their right hand, and their feet would have pointed away from the table. And this is the position Jesus is in. He may have even been the guest of honor. And if that's the case, he would have been reclining against the chest of Simon the Pharisee, who would have had the seat right next to him or been laying right behind him. And then we have the third character in this story. It's a woman. Now, we don't know her name, but we do know, according to the narrator, what her reputation is. And the reputation of this woman is that she, quote, lived a sinful life. Apparently, whatever city they're in, it's known that she has lived a sinful life, and she beelines it right to Jesus. Now, this isn't surprising for the reader, because right before the verses we read, we also learned that Jesus had a reputation that wasn't very good. 
Jesus, it was said, was a glutton and a drunkard. The literal Greek reads, Jesus was fun Bobby. (laughs) Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now this is important because tax collectors were basically white collar criminals who colluded with the empire to oppress and exploit and exploit the poor. So Jesus, when it comes to being friends with sinners, it wasn't just the down and outers, it was also the up and outers that he seemed to be hanging out with. And so you have this woman who sees Jesus and she says, I know who, that he's friends with people like me and she walks right over toward him, possibly standing right near Simon. Keep in mind, this woman is the kind of person that is responsible for the problems that the country of Israel is experiencing. And somebody like Simon looks at her and would have said, you're part of the problem. Do you feel the tension that's immediately in this room when she walks in and stands behind Jesus right next to Simon? They are not on the same page. They are on other sides of the aisle, we might say. We could say they voted for different candidates. They had different opinions on vaccines. You you get what I'm talking about. A lot of tension. Except she seems to ignore all of that. And she begins to weep. She begins to wash Jesus' feet with her own hair. She even anoints them with expensive perfume. And then... Simon makes two assumptions. The first assumption is about Jesus. The second is about the woman. The first assumption about Jesus is this. There's no way this guy's a prophet. And he thinks that because prophets, they, they kind of were, it was supposed that they had some sort of insight or maybe some clairvoyance. And so if he really was a prophet, he would know that this sinner is touching him and what kind of sinner she is. Now, The narrator says nothing about what her sin was. She says that she was sinful. But if she was sinful, and that's her reputation, then she likely was impure or unclean according to Jewish law. And if she's touching Jesus, then he's now unclean or impure according to Jewish law. So Simon assumes, oh, he's not a prophet because a prophet would know better. And then he makes an assumption about the woman. Notice he says... He would know what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. And he labels her with that word. Now let me pause for a second and make some comments about the word sinner. And I want to pause because I recognize that largely religion, and especially in the Christian church, that word has been used much the same way that Simon uses it, in a derogatory, negative, accusatory way to put people down. But the word sinner, or the word sin, literally means this, to miss the mark. And I realize that this word has been used and polluted by a lot of people over a lot of time. So there are some who are like, we need to stop using that word. We need to censor it. But I think the word sin and the word sinner is far too good to abandon it just because it's been inappropriately used by other people. And here's why I say that. The idea of missing the mark just means you're not living according to who you really are. And who are we? Well, according to the sacred text, you and me and everyone who's ever been born, we are bearers of the divine image. We look and reflect the image and the glory and the beauty of the divine. 
So the idea of you being a sinner just means you're behaving in a way, you're, you're acting in a way, or you're speaking in a way that's below who you are. I know you to be something far better than to behave this way. I think about my best moment as a friend or as a brother or as a parent. I don't come at people and say, you sinner, because it always goes well, by the way. People are like, oh, thank you for pointing that out. No, it's, hey, I know who you are, and when you act this way, it doesn't line up with, like, the kind of person I know you to be. It's literally what it means. I actually experienced this in a, in a, in a moment that honestly was transformative for me. Uh, when I was in college, I played soccer, and, uh, oh, wow. You gotta love the internet. That stuff just stays out there. For some of you who are wondering, like, when was this picture taken? It was right around 1995, and I know that because of the necklaces that I'm wearing. <laughs> some of you are like, your hair it was so light. Yeah, it's called sun in. <laughs> You're like, that was never in style. I know. <laughs> this was my sophomore year of college. Oh my goodness. And, uh, so I played, when I played soccer, I played wing. Now, if you're not familiar with soccer, what that means is you played very close to the sidelines the entire match, and you just ran back and forth endlessly, endlessly. It's what they did to people with a lot of energy, like me. And there was one match we were playing at home, and we were playing against a rival, and we, I was on the sideline near our benches, where the benches were, and the president of our Christian university decided this should be the match where he goes and practices solidarity with the soccer team and sits on the bench with us as a way of like cheering for us. And so the game is in like, you know, we're going on and I'm right on the sideline, like 20 feet away from the bench and the ball is passed to me and I go to receive the ball and just before the ball gets to me, I feel cleats in the back of my calf because the guy who was defending me decided this is my moment to play dirty. Now I, being the way I am, started to go down, but I reached back as I fell and grabbed a handful of his jersey, and I began to pull him with me, and I had the wherewithal to turn my shoulders and swing at him as hard as I could, hoping to make contact with something from the shoulders up. And I kind of like, my forearm kind of biffed off the top of his head. And as if that wasn't bad enough, I screamed, you mother of pearl earrings. <laughs> no, I dropped like the granddaddy of them all, right in front of the president of our university. <laughs> so the whistle blows and I, the referee comes running over and some players come around us and they kind of separate us. And I hear our coach in the midst of all of it say, Russ, go in the game for Michael. And I was like, oh dear. So we take the free kick, ball goes out of bounds, whistle blows, and I jog over to sub out, and our coach is standing right next to Russ, and I'm like, here it comes. And I step over the sideline, and Russ goes in, and our coach didn't even let me go back to the bench. I looked at him, and he had a look on his face. He almost looked like he was about to laugh, but it was just this very casual, loving look. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Michael, we need you in this game but we don't need your temper in this game. Are you good with that? And I said, yeah. He said, good, go in for Russ. And he walked back to the bench and he sat down. 
And I say that was an inflection point for me because it was the first time someone didn't come at me and say, you hot-headed fool. It was the first time someone didn't say, why can't you keep it together? Someone, my coach, saw me as someone who was needed and was able to look past the behavior. In other words, I know who you are. And this whole bit of you taking a swing at a guy and dropping F-bombs isn't that. Leave this behind because we need this. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that reframed the way I walked and played on the soccer field for the rest of my career. That's the power of being able to see somebody. That's the power of being able to say, yeah, there is sin. In other words, you're behaving in a way that's below who you are. Now, to be clear, this is not the way Simon meant it. Simon was looking at this woman saying, you sinner, which leads Jesus to tell a story. There's two people who owe a debt. One debt is 50. One debt is 500. The debt collector miraculously forgives the debt, and he says, who do you think is going to love the debt collector more? And Simon says, well, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, exactly. But just to make sure, Simon, you're not missing the point, let me ask you a question. And Jesus, it says, turns to the woman who's standing behind him. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? He doesn't say, hey, Simon, you know the sinner behind you? Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this person? Do you see this child of God? Completely reframing it. Not sinner. No, a person. A human. A woman. Do you see her? Do you see the way that she's acting, Simon? Because I've seen the way that you're acting. You didn't wash my feet, which, by the way, would have kind of been somewhat standard protocol because it was dusty and most people wore Birkenstocks and so their feet were always dirty. And so you'd go in and you'd wash people's feet or at least have your servant do it. So Simon, you didn't even do that, but look at her. She's, she's washing my feet with her tears. And Simon, have you noticed that you didn't greet me with the common greeting of a kiss which is typically what someone who would be invited to a home would have received. She's been kissing my feet the whole time. Hey, hey, Simon, you know that whole thing about olive oil, which you'd often give people so they kind of rub, rub it together, maybe rub it through their hair and on their beard, maybe on their face to freshen up a bit? You didn't give me even that as a common courtesy. And here she is wasting, we might say, expensive perfume on my feet. Simon, do you, do you see this woman? Do you see her actions that give evidence to who she is and what's happened to her? She's the one who's been forgiven much. This is why she's acting that way. And then he makes a comment that I think is a little bit sarcastic or maybe ironic. He says, because those who've been forgiven little love little. In other words, Simon, she's behaving in a way that you are not because she's experienced something that you haven't. Now, of course, the reason I say it's a little bit cheeky or ironic is because everyone's been forgiven a lot. 
Whether you're a Pharisee, whether you're religious, or whether you're a kid on a soccer field dropping F-bombs, or whether you're a woman who has a reputation in town as someone who led a sinful life, you've all been forgiven a lot. The difference is whether or not you want to admit it. Father Richard Rohr speaks about this, and this is what he says. He says, it really is shocking how little Jesus is shocked by human failure and sin. It is really shocking how little Jesus is shocked by human failure and sin. In fact, it never appears that he's upset at sinners at all. He is only and consistently upset at people who do not think they are sinners. Man. Whether or not you're into sports, I assume this week you heard about a fellow named Damar Hamlin. Terrifying moment. Brutally terrifying moment. No matter what your opinion of the NFL or sports is, it was just terrifying. This is a fellow who plays for the Buffalo Bills who literally collapsed with cardiac arrest on the field and was brought back to life through CPR in critical condition. And all across the internet and the airwaves were these words. Pray for Damar. And you know what's interesting? You would think that religious people would say, hey man, at least we're recognizing God in this moment. No. Several people said, well, we live in a country where people want to disregard God until we need something and then God just becomes their cosmic vending machine. You know what you need to do is you need to repent. And I'm like, Are you, is this really where we're going with this? Is it, because here's what's interesting. Read the Gospels for yourself. Jesus never criticizes the non-religious, but Jesus always criticizes the religious who are criticizing the non-religious. Jesus never criticizes the sinners. As a matter of fact, people are like, oh, you know what? Jesus talks about hell all the time. He does talk about hell all the time. And you know who he threatens with hell? The religious who really want to make sure that some people, not them, are going to hell. He says, if you're that concerned about it, here's the bad news. You're probably going to hell. Oh, and you already might be there. This is what we see Simon doing. He's been forgiven little, at least he thinks he has. Whether he's not aware of it or whether he's denying it, we don't know. But, but here's... What I, what I see in this whole piece here that's really, really disturbing is when you look at Simon, in some ways you almost like want to grab him by the neck and punch him. Anyone else feel like that? When you come around self-righteous people, just smack him upside the head and give him the old like share and moonstruck, what's the matter with you, you know, kind of thing. And for a long time, when it comes to self-righteous people, I find myself just irritated. It's like a cheese grater on the elbows, not pleasant. But I realize that my reaction to self-righteous people only exposes my own self-righteousness. And as much as self-righteous people bother me, to be honest with you, the more I spent time with this text this week and contemplating this, the story of Simon really worked me. And here's why. What we learn about Simon is that he's able to love very little. In other words, Simon knows almost nothing about love. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy of epic proportions. 
Now, I grew up in a world like Simon inhabited. I grew up in a very strict, rigid, fundamentalist, legalistic world. And the weird thing was, to get into that world, you had to confess your sins, meaning say, I am a sinner. But once you got into that world, then it was expected, well, now you have to be perfect. And of course, no one can be. And if you weren't perfect, people would bring the thunder and the lightning down on you and punish you and threaten you with all kinds of punishment. And that didn't elicit honest behavior. People either faked it to the extent that they really believed they were good and perfect, or we just hid it. And if you weren't good at faking it, you were thrown out. And if you weren't good at hiding it, you were thrown out. And by the way, it could be any flavor of sin. Even questioning the authority was considered a sin, and you'd get tossed. I assume there's some of you in this room who've experienced something like that. And this idea was fake it or hide it or else. And it was an exhausting, stifling way of life. But it's a religious kind of life. And it offers one a lot of seeming security. You kind of know where you stand with everything. And wouldn't you know that bugger's a real shapeshifter? Because it's still alive and well in our world today. It just is a different set of rules and a different set of morals. Some of the most fundamentalist, legalistic people I knew are white progressives who grew up in the evangelical space who still want to punish and bash and destroy anybody who cuts across the grain of what they believe is the right thing to do. Man, you look a lot like the performative religion you're running from. It's unbelievable and it's sad and it's tragic because what it means is you still haven't encountered love like this woman who's wetting the feet of Jesus' feet with her tears. And so we go about our virtue signaling. We go about posting the right things on, on social media depending on whatever the social flavor of the month is. We go about criticizing the right people, using the right language in the right way at the right time. Also, people will be like, you're doing great, because if we don't do great, we know punishment is coming for us. It's a tragedy. And it's here. And it's real. A couple months ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a very, very liberal, progressive kind of person who's a Christian. And he and I have been doing some work with, a, with an organization, and he called me and said, hey, do you have a few minutes? And I said, yeah. He said, man, I have some serious concerns about this organization. And I said, oh, well, help me out. He said, well, I found out. I'm not kidding you. He said, I found out there's some real conservative Christians that are working in it. Now, this is a guy, by the way, who's like, I'm super inclusive. I'm like, mm-hmm, no, you're not. I found out there's some real conservative. He's like, do you know about this? I said, no. He's like, well, what do you think? I said, I think if you work for any Fortune 500 company in the world, you'd probably sit across a cubicle from a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist. I I don't know what to tell you. And he said, well, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, can I make an observation? He said, yeah. I said, you sound a lot like conservative Christians. (laughs) He didn't laugh. (laughs) He was just kind of quiet for a minute. And then I said to him, hey, man, I love you, but you know what they say, you can take the man out of the evangelicalism, but you can't take the evangelicalism out of the man. It's amazing how we've taken this with us, which I would call maybe the sin of Simon. 
which is as old as the earth itself. We're told that when the man and the woman are in the garden, they both sin. They both eat the fruit that God commanded them not to eat from. And then when God comes into the garden, he says to the man, hey, what have you done? He's like, oh, it's the woman you put here with me. She's, I mean, totally her fault. In other words, I've done nothing wrong. And then he says to the woman, what have you done? She's like, it's the serpent. You know, that slithery thing. It's that one's fault. Kathleen O'Connor says that denial is the original sin. Our refusal to actually just embrace and accept we've done something wrong. And we live in a culture today, both inside the church and outside the church, that says if you do something wrong, punishment is coming. And you know what that does? It keeps us away from grace and forgiveness. And if we're, we're in a, unable to be forgiven much, we are unable to love much. Maybe this is why we live in such an unloving world today. Because everyone's trying so damn hard to be perfect. Robert Capon, in his book, Between Noon and Three, says this. Grace cannot prevail until finally and for good our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. God's not keeping score. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. God's not keeping score. Yeah, but you're not aware of what I said to her when she, God's not keeping score. You are forgiven. That's the good news. That's the good news. And I wonder, like, what would happen if we just decided, you know what we're going to be? We're going to be a group of people who just, we stop playing pretense. Like, we're, we're done with the whole manufactured appearances thing. We're, we're going to trust grace. We're going we're gonna to be done with the carefully curated persona that we put out for the world to see. We're going to trust that there's forgiveness. Not as an excuse to behave however we want, but as a way of understanding love more and more deeply, which allows us to love more and more deeply. Like, what would it be like the next time someone comes after you to blame you, to accuse you, to point at you, and be like, you sinner? What would it be like if you were able to see Jesus laying down, turn around to look at you and say, wait, 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 do you see this woman? Simon, I hear the accusations, but do you see this man? Do you see this person made in the image and likeness of God? Because that's who they are. Sure, they're behaving in a way that might be below them, but I know who they are. Do you see this child? Do you see this son? Do you see this daughter? What if that's what we pursued? Now, the bad news about that is, is that we would just have to actually begin saying we're imperfect, which I think would be a step in the right direction. Years ago, when I first started as a pastor, the church where I worked had the largest AA meeting in the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And one of the first times I ever preached, this old guy came down the aisle and he said, hey man, I don't know what you're doing after the service, but you need to come with me because we're going to an AA meeting. And I was like, I don't have a drinking problem. <laughs> and he's like, that's denial, come with me. <laughs> and so I just went with him and we sat down and he's like, hey, just sit here, don't say a word. Like, All right. And I just saw person after person stand up and speak honestly. And something in me was like, could you, could you imagine if this is the way it was when we all gathered together on a Sunday morning? No pretense. Like, to, 
Part of being a part of the recovery community is saying, I'm powerless over my addiction. Or you could paraphrase, I have something that's a problem for me. And I know who I am and the way I'm behaving and what I've given myself to is below me. And person by person stood up and when they would speak, people would applaud and give hugs and celebrate. Celebrate just one more day of sobriety. And I thought, this is a picture of grace. And it's people who are able to cheer and applaud for a brother or a sister who had just relapsed that week but was now two days sober. You know why? Because they knew what it meant to admit that they had done something wrong and to receive that grace and to receive that forgiveness and to receive that love. And it was only when they received it they could give it back because you cannot give something you do not possess. A.L. Romano, in an article in Vox, writes this about grace. Grace, the act of allowing people room to be human and make mistakes while still loving them and valuing them, might be the holiest, most precious concept of all. Grace relies on some huge assumptions that people mean well, that they are capable of self-reflection and change, and, of course, that we all possess equal shares of dignity and humanity. That's what makes the concept of grace so powerful. It forces us to contend not only with other people's human frailty, but with our own. To remember how good it feels when someone out of the blue treats us with respect, empathy, and kindness in the middle of an angry conversation where we expect nothing but hostility. To be shown the kindness of strangers when we expect cruelty, and then bestow that gift in turn, that's the remarkable quality of grace. You know, since the pandemic, there's been a lot of questions about, like, why would I go to church? And I get it. I still ask that question most Sundays at 6 a.m. when my alarm goes off and I have to go to work. Why would I go to church? And as I thought about that this week, I thought, I don't know, just to be able to get into a room full of people to remind yourself that there's probably someone in here who by all accounts is more messed up than you are. <laughs> and to remember that the extent to which they're willing to accept that and admit that means that they're actually able to love more and more and more. In our current cultural moment that's really short and stripped of grace, that doesn't know forgiveness anymore, that's rather unloving and divided. Maybe the most radical thing we can do as a faith community is simply own our stuff. Readily admit where we're wrong. Open ourselves up to be candidates of grace, which only happens when you admit you have a lot to be forgiven for. And maybe if we're able to do that, we'd learn what it means to love. In love with extravagance. To be people who show up here on a Sunday morning without pretense, simply asking, hey, do you have some bread? Do you have some wine? Because I'm pretty sure I need that again. To be those who, even when accused or labeled or have people pointing at us, are able to hear the tender words of Jesus spoken over us. Simon, do you see this woman? Let's pray together. God, I pray that the idea of grace and forgiveness 
uh, would scandalize us a little bit, would, would disturb us, would upset us. May we become those who freely accept your grace and forgiveness as upsetting as it can be so that we would become those who are not only able to give it to others but are able to love much because you first loved us. We thank you for the kindness, the tenderness, the compassion, the love of Jesus put on display in the midst of this dinner party. We thank you for the courage of this woman who ignored all that was supposed to be going on but loved much because she was honest about who she was and the things she had done. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said, Thanks for engaging with our teaching. Uh, before you go, we want to let you know about some things coming up in the life of our community. Uh, and one of those is this next Sunday, January 15th, our DCC Men's Social Group is going to be meeting uh, for a DCC Men's Night Out. Um, it is a poker tournament, um, and we're also going to have uh, whatever playoff game is happening uh, on the big screen downstairs here at DCC. It will also be a fundraiser for DCC's Justice and Peacemaking Initiative. Project Renew, and it's just going to be a great time to connect in community and support the work that Project Renew does locally and globally. We'll have prizes for the poker tournament, snacks and soft drinks will be provided, and you can bring something that you like, um, but that will be this next Sunday from 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, you can find more details on our website at denverchurch.org. Uh, we also... I know it feels early, but Lent is going to be here uh, in just over a month. Um, and we are again this year doing our Lent groups. And so we need uh, group facilitators, group hosts. Each year, these groups provide the opportunity for us to intentionally engage in that season and ask questions, better understand the story of Jesus, and dive deeper into community with others. If you're interested in more information on what it looks like to lead one of these groups, please email Amanda at alum at denverchurch.org. That's alum at denverchurch.org. That's all we've got this week. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.